Oh, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 21 this morning. If you don't have a Bible and you need to borrow one, just grab the Black Pew Bible in front of you and go to page 891. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, or page 891 if you're using our Pew Bible. Well, if you haven't been here in our series in Romans, recall when we started, it's been about a year now, Romans as a letter begins with just a, a, just a punch. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Powerful words. And really, those first 11 chapters has been an explanation of the very thing he was talking about as Paul presents the gospel, God's power in the gospel, securing salvation for humanity who is in danger, in need of that saving. And the only thing we need to do in response to that is believe that we are, in fact, in danger and in need of delivering, and he is the one that can do the job. In other words, believe the gospel. God saves sinners. That might be just three words, but those three words are packed with conceptual significance. God, to believe in God, to believe in this actual omnipotent, benevolent, all-powerful being is a poke in the eye to the naturalism, the physicalism, the neo-Darwinism of our culture. So to say actually God exists is something significant. Saves implies we're in trouble that there's a problem that requires saving from, and sinners obviously radically countercultural in itself. We are not all that in a bag of chips. We are not okay. We are sinners, the recipients of the action of the verb of God. God saves us. To believe God saves sinners is the gospel. To understand those three words are far more profound than the three words we use to express it. That's what Paul's talking about. That's why he's not ashamed of this gospel. So chapters 1 through 11 was really unpacking just that first part. God's glory, our rebellion against that glory, our danger, our need, God acting to meet that need in Jesus Christ and our new hope. Chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 12 through 16 then are the after effects of that. How do you know you understand and have embraced the gospel? How do you know anyone has understood and embraced the gospel? Well, their lives change. That's what the point of Romans chapter 12 through 16 is about. What does that look like? What does it look like to be a believer, a disciple of Christ, a Christian? You have to look no further than these four chapters, Romans 12 through 16. And as 116, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation, is the foundational statement of all chapters 1 through 11. So Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 is the foundation of everything that comes through 12 through 16. Let me read those two foundational verses because they're so important. So important if we're going to understand everything that we've been studying so far in this, what you might call the second half of the book of Romans. Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, some of your translations might say um, reasonable worship. That's a fine translation of the both. Both, that, both those words can be translated from the original Greek that way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Wow, friends, when we read those two verses, 
five foundational truths kind of set the trajectory of everything that's coming coming in these chapters. Number one, true worship, we learn, is always responsive. What do I mean by that? Notice what Paul says, in view of the mercies of God, worship of God is not something we do so that we get something from him. Worship of God is something we do because we already got something from him, his son, grace, the gospel. True worship is always responsive in view of his mercies towards us. Secondly, from those two verses, we learn that true worship It's like 24-7, 365, 360, right? Did you notice that term living sacrifice? Now, for us, we use that term, uh, well, I hope you always use that term metaphorically, right? But in this day and age, they had an understanding of what actual literal sacrifice looked like. So they knew, and when Paul added the word, the adjective living, how much more vivid that became. You're all in. There's, There's no real like partial sacrifice. And so true worship is a 24-7, 365, 360, it's all-encompassing. You are a sacrifice or you're not. It's not something you kind of can be. It's like a woman cannot be kind of pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either a sacrifice or you're not. True worship, it's all-consuming. So true worship is always a response to God. True worship is always all-consuming. And third, we learn from these two verses that true worship is supernatural, man. You cannot do this Christian life on your own. You remember when we studied the book of Galatians, I said, the life of Christ is impossible without the life of Christ. You cannot do it without the life of Christ. Notice Paul says, the renewal of the mind. God regenerates us. God remakes us. It is not just a kind of a a better, improved version of you. According to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, there's something completely new in you when you're in Christ. So true worship is always a response. True worship is all-consuming. True worship, it, it, true worship is the supernatural work of God. Fourth, true worship is level-headed. What do I mean by that? Notice what Paul says. This is your reasonable service. You go, wait, wait, living as a full-blown sacrifice, 24-7, 365, 360, doesn't seem very reasonable. Sounds like a fanatic. Nope, it's pretty reasonable. In light of all that God has done, any response less than that is by definition unreasonable. That's what Paul is saying. Unless you're living this way, you don't get the gospel. You might got religion. You might got maybe social conservative values, but you don't have Christianity. True worship is reasonable. Living this way is reasonable. Living in response, always responding to his grace, uh, being fully committed. This is supernatural. This is a reasonable response to live your life this way. And then fifth and finally, true worship is glorious because you get to understand and participate in the will of God. That's what Paul says in those two verses. This is why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. This is why he believes that it is the power of God because it has this kind of effect. It produces this kind of community. That community then is, guess what, us, the local church, the body of Christ. He talked about that in in detail last week in verses 4 through 8. Now, all that being said, and it's all true, and in spite of our newness in Christ, right, Romans 6.11, dead to sin, alive to God because of Christ, Even though that's the case, holiness is neither automatic nor inevitable. Amen? Right? It just just doesn't flow directly. There's not a one-to-one correspondence. There ought to be, but there's not. 
So constantly you see Paul, constantly if you're discipling someone, there's constant, uh, you have to plead with them to live changed lives and give reasons to do so because the world is always trying to tempt us and distract us. And so what we see here in Romans 12, 9 through 21 is just another one of those sections of scripture where Paul is trying to help the Roman Christians and ourselves fill out what the will of God, that thing that is good, acceptable, and perfect, actually looks like in everyday living. That's the point of these 13 verses that we're going to look at this morning. Right? That's what he's trying to say. Do you want to know what the will of God is? It's right there. Right? Are you, if you're a Christian and you're asking yourself, well, what is the will of God for my life? You don't have to look further than these 13 verses. Now, to be clear, the will of God is a lot more than that, but it's not less than this. So if you want to know what the will of God is for your life, then this message is for you this morning. With that being said, hopefully you're at Romans 12, starting at verse 9. Would you stand for the reading of the word of God? And in case you're wondering, I'm hoping you are awake by now because I realize we are an hour behind less on sleep. So I hope you're with me. Paul writes this, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A basic principle in studying the Bible, maybe some of you are seasoned students at that, and some of you might be new at it, is allowing Scripture to interpret Scripture. This is helpful because oftentimes what one writer is talking about in certain portion of Scripture is expounded by another, and sometimes the same topic is unpacked in a different nuance, and you can get something more out of it, more out of it than you would have normally just looking at that one particular text. When I think of Romans 12 this morning, a couple of passages of Scripture come to mind, but one that probably most of you are aware of and heard. 1 Corinthians 13, actually. Um, particularly 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. But you may have gone to a wedding and heard 1 Corinthians 13, especially what's called the great love passage, right? Verses 4 through 7, right? You know the one I'm talking about, love is patient, love is kind, it does not boast, does not envy, that passage. Uh, well, that is a cue to understand what we're talking about here in Romans 12. You see, and, and I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you had uh, 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding, but do you realize that 1 Corinthians 13 has nothing to do about weddings? It doesn't talk about marriage or husbands and wives at all. It has nothing to do with that. I know, I can be a buzzkill sometimes, but that's true. What is 1 Corinthians 13, the great love passage, talking about? What's the context? 
It's not hard to see. Paul is talking about a local church. He's talking about a local church. Now, you may be disappointed, and maybe if you have a wedding coming up and you're planning on using 1 Corinthians 13, you can still do that. My point simply is this. What we so often associate with a passage of Scripture that is helpful in understanding what makes a good marriage, Paul wants us to understand, or God wants us to understand, that's the same thing that makes a good church. Because in both cases, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and Romans 12, the structure is parallel. Paul talks about the body of Christ, the local church, and key to making that happen is love, and then he unpacks what that love looks like in everyday living. He does the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. Almost the entire chapter talks about the body of Christ. Then he jumps into the importance of love. And he does the same thing in Romans 12 where he talks about the body of Christ, what we are be together, and the importance of love. Now, if you've read ahead, you know these 13 verses, I mean, they defy anything but the broadest outline. There are 30 commands in just 13 verses. And so we're just going to look at it the way Paul presents it at this broadest level, talking about love's intensity in verses 9 through 13, and then love's apologetic in verses 14 to 21. Now, heads up. By apologetic, we don't mean we're saying sorry, right? Apologetic comes from apologia. It means to make a case, make a defense, an argument for something. So that's what Paul's going to do. We're going to look at love's intensity and then love's apologetic. We'll look at them one at a time. Starting at verse 9 through 13, Paul talks about love's intensity. And he says, let love be genuine. Now, if you have like a NIV or a New King James, it might say like sincere, uh, which is a good translation as well. I, I always found it interesting that Paul would begin the sentence, let love be genuine. And the two reasons I kind of think of that maybe the reason that Paul brings that up is number one, he may be aware of the all too common tendency to be one thing around some people and another thing around others. Can anyone relate to that temptation? This is a temptation that faces any of us who want to be faithful to Christ. And it's a temptation that even the best of us succumb to. If you want an example, just think of the Apostle Peter in Galatians chapter 2. You remember when we walked through the gospel, or we went through the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, there's Peter enjoying fellowship with the, the Christians there who weren't Jews, right? The gospel had torn down the, the barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles, and now they could have table fellowship. They were one in Christ, and Peter was hanging out with these non Jewish Christians and enjoying life and the benefits of the gospel. And just a wonderful scene until. The scripture says some brothers from the Jerusalem church came by. Now, some of the tension in the early church was they weren't sure at that time how much of Judaism you had to buy into to actually be a Christian. There was still a great overlap. And the case so often made in the New Testament is that the gospel is by grace, not by keeping the law of Judaism, not by keeping the national identity markers, not by being Jewish. You're totally new in Christ. We don't need to abide by those things. And there was still some tension. It was being worked out. But Galatians tells us some brothers from the Jerusalem church came by and Peter, fearing what they would think of him, backed away from his fellowship to these Gentile Christians and was leading the other Jewish Christians into the same hypocrisy until Paul called them out. He says, Peter, what is going on? If the gospel's real, then why are you pretending that it's not? If the wall of division between all humanity has been dropped, then we all have fellowship together because we are all in one in Christ. But you are now making two tiers, those that are in, those that are out, and that's not the gospel. We're all one, all equal footing at the foot of the cross. 
You see, Peter, in that moment, which is really surprising if you know anything about Peter, he was more interested in what those men from Jerusalem thought about the way he was living than he was interested in what God thought about the way he was living. In that moment, when he loved them in a certain context here, but when the circumstances changed, he changed that love, Peter was not being genuine. He was letting circumstance dictate love rather than the gospel. In other words, Peter felt the pressures of man more keenly than the pleasures of God. To put it another way, the pressures of man to be accepted by them was more real to him than the pleasures of being accepted by God. And as a result, he, his love was not genuine. Maybe some of you can relate. Are the pressures of being accepted by others more real to you than the pleasure of already being accepted by God? And friends, we can see from this text, especially in Galatians and the way Paul and Peter lived and worked through it, there is a proportional directional link between how much the pressures of man to be accepted by them feel real to you and how low the pleasure of being accepted by God will be in your life. Conversely, the more the pleasures of being accepted by God are real to you, the less and less you will feel the pressures of man to be accepted by them. It always works in tandem this way. And Peter, it felt more real to be accepted by men than to be accepted by God, and his love changed. And Paul called him out on it. Now, Paul, the word genuine here in our text here in Romans, is, is using a word that comes from the concept of play acting. Uh, it comes from theater. And, and literally mean, the word literally is an anti-hypocrite. That's what the actual word in the Greek is. It's anti-hypocrite. See, in Greek theater, uh, women were not allowed to be in theater. It was all the men. And so men would often wear a mask to portray a particular role. And then when they needed to change roles, they would put on another mask. They did that where women's roles or many other roles, they would constantly be switching masks. This is where we get our expression, you shouldn't be two-faced, comes from. It comes from this concept. And Paul is saying, that's not what Christian love is like. Love is constant. It is not two-faced. It's not one way in some situations and a completely different way in another situation. In more simple language, Paul is saying, hey, don't put on a Sunday mask, only to put on a Monday mask the next morning. That's not what love is. So that's one possibility why Paul could be saying, let love be genuine. But my second thought was, maybe Paul was aware of the tendency that we have in churches and maybe more traditional cultures to replace being nice with being loving, right? Or confusing nice and love as if they were the same thing. And they're not. Some of you are familiar with the expression Midwestern nice. Have you heard that? Or like my friend up in Portland calls it, he calls it Portland nice. He calls it a sort of non-confrontational, let's not make you feel uncomfortable all the while we are judging and dismissing you silently in our minds nice, right? <laughs> Portland nice is what he calls it. See, nice doesn't confront sin because that's not nice, right? But love does confront sin. Because 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says love does not rejoice in what is wrong. Nice doesn't hold others accountable because nice people don't get involved in other people's business. But love does. Because love values the person even more than the relationship you have with them and is willing to risk some awkward conversations. That's what Hebrews 3.13 tells us. Nice 
Nice doesn't offend at all costs because that's the exact opposite of being nice. But love, if it's necessary, will offend because love understands there's more at stake than social pleasantries. Proverbs 27.6. And friends, wanting to be nice tempts us to put these masks on all the time. So it's not strange after all why Paul might start with, let love be genuine. Because look at the intensity of what follows. Look at 9 through 13. Look at the adjectives and the nouns that Paul just piles up there. First of all, he launches off with abhor, right? This is not just don't like or avoid. This is abhor. (laughs) Abhor evil. Hold fast. Hold fast. This idea behind it is to be glued to something, cemented, nailed together. Have affection, zeal, fervency, it says. That the word picture behind that is a boiling pot on a kettle. Rejoice, have patience, consistency, exercise hospitality. Now, some of you in your Bibles, the subheading says marks of a true Christian. But for a guy like me, my subheading is introvert's nightmare, right? (laughs) Because, man, this is some intense moving towards people. I'm not comfortable with that. Like I said, I like my motorcycle, I like my dogs, I like my books. People are hard. But that's what we're called to be. This is some intense language. Paul's saying in order to have this kind of pursuit of morality, this commitment, this, this energy, and this care for one another, love has to be the real thing, man. You cannot fake this. You cannot coast on cultivated Christian civility. It will be exposed at some point. Love's got to be genuine. Because look at what he's saying. Look at the intensity of the, the morality and the commitment all these things. He's not just saying avoid evil, right? He, he, what is he saying that we should do with evil? He's not even saying hate it. He's saying abhor it. It's like hate times ten, right? But it's not even enough to hate evil, he says. You have got to be glued into what is good, beautiful, and true. Right? So it's not just one, because if you just hate evil, but you don't hold fast to what is good, beautiful, and true, you might just be a Pharisee. Then he talks about the, the love we are to have as a congregation, and he uses a word that's common in our language, Philadelphia, right? That city, the city of brotherly love, comes from this word. You are to have this familial affection for one another in Christ. And we, this is something we, we got to hear Ask yourself, if you are a Christian, do you have this familial affection for people in the body of Christ with you? The reason I say that is because I think one of the accepted evangelical idols that we have is the idol of family. That that family is above all, and, and even if the will of God needs to be thwarted, avoided, or ignored, family matters. And as evangelicals, we've accepted that, and I think we need to repent of that. I was talking to one of our missionaries down in Radius. Um, You guys remember Ron. He's now in Australia. And he says, you'd be surprised how often families show up on parent day and they are mad at us. So those who don't know, Radius is this wonderful, radical missions organization. Their motto is 20 to life, right? Unless you plan to give 20 years out in a hard place, don't even bother signing up with them. And so they are committed to sending Christians into some of the hardest places that have no Bible, in some cases no language, to creating languages for the, so they have Bibles to the, for those people. They don't create a language. They make an alphabet for it. So you can speak a language before you actually write it. And that's what they do. They say often parents will show up and they're angry with them because they are taking away their kids and their grandkids. I get it, right? I got three kids. 
I don't know if I'd be happy if they were going to go to some country where I'll never get to see them or my grandkids. But I think that's an idea, an example of the idol of family eclipsing the glory of God. Right? What God said in the garden that whatever God has put together, let no man take apart, does not contradict what God said in the Gospels in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus said, look, who are my mothers, my brothers, my sisters? It are these are those who do the will of God that is my mother, brother, and sister, not my biological family. And how shocking that was in a communal culture context for Jesus to say that. Now, bonus, if your biological family is also your spiritual family, then you're blessed but some of you have biological family and they're not part of the spiritual family. And sometimes you're going to have to live at a cost if you're going to be a Christian. And that's something that we're faced with right here. Love the brothers and sisters as if they were family, maybe more so. Paul goes on. Last week, we talked about Philippians 2.4. Not only should we look out for the interests of others, but Paul says here, we should outdo each other in showing honor to one another. Outdo each other. Friends, what would it look like if every one of us, what kind of a community would we be if we just picked one of these that Paul lists here in these 13 verses and just committed to cultivating them in our lives? What kind of a community would we be? Pretty radical. Friends, are you feeling somewhat apathetic in your faith? Paul says, be fervent in spirit. Are you becoming weary in prayer? Paul says, be constant in prayer. Is your faith just becoming dry duty? Paul says, have brotherly affection for one another. Have you become despondent? Paul says, learn to rejoice in hope. Are there needs of the brothers or sisters you can meet? Paul says, seek to show hospitality. Seek it out. Don't just wait for those needs to come to you. If you've got ability, seek out those needs and meet them. Now, honestly, though, and for me, this part of Romans is challenging, isn't it? All the theology part's easy. Information, we can do all that. But to actually talk about the transformation part, this gets to be convicting. And I don't know about you, but I feel keenly my failure. Not in grappling with justification by faith, but actually loving brothers and sisters in Christ well. So, brother or sister, take heart. If you hear this and you say, look, I cannot love like that. I don't love like this. I hope if you are a Christian, you at least will say or ask, how can I love like this? I get it. Some of us can't. Some of us don't. But all of us should ask, how can I? If you call yourself a Christian, right? That's what scripture is facing us with right here. And for that, I want you to keep your finger in Romans and turn to, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 5. So you can go to 2 Corinthians 5, but we're also going to go to Romans 5 as well. So 2 Corinthians is to your left, just a few pages. And then Romans 5 is, excuse me, 2 Corinthians is to the right of Romans. And then Romans 5 is to the left of where you're at. So as we hear this, right, and I imagine the Roman Christians too are, probably a bit overwhelmed, as we might be. Take to heart what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, and then what he says in Romans 5.5. 5. So this is what he says to the Corinthians. And I love what he says in verse 13. I'll back it up. So if we are beside ourselves, so if we're out of our minds, if we, if we seem loony to you, it is for God. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. But here's where it gets good. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. 
For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says. Now, depending on how you look at the grammar, is it a subjective genitive or objective? I don't know. Is he saying our love for Christ compels us to live this way or the love that Christ has for us compels us to live this way? Either way, the result is the same. We are so overflowing, either because he has loved us or our hearts are loving him. We have to do this. There's no other alternative but to do this. That word compel is intentional. So regardless of whether it's Paul saying, my love for Christ is such that I just have to do this, or he's saying, Christ's love for me is so much I just have to do this, both the results are the same. My life is compelled by a certain direction. And that is the love of Christ. Either his for me or mine for his. Well, then how do we get that, though? And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Now, this is an amazing chapter because you remember our study through it. Paul is talking about the redemptive power of suffering in these initial verses in verse 5 or of chapter 5. But then he says this in Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit in whom he's given to us. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What's the point? This love that we're talking about, Romans 12, it's not a natural love. It is, a, it is God's love poured out into you. Friend, if you are a Christian, you can love like this. If you are a Christian, you must love like this, right? You've got to come to grips with the scripture. It may not make you feel good, but that's what it's saying. And this is why Paul began with the sentence, love must be genuine, the real thing. You cannot fake the funk. If you, if you don't have the love of God in you, you cannot live the life God wants you to live. It's only when we have this real love that it creates this kind of community, and it's only when you have this kind of community you can reach a lost and dying world. And the fact that here you and I are 2,000 years on the other side of the planet talking about it, that tells us that it is possible. Because that's exactly what the community, that's exactly what the early church did. They turned the world upside down by the way they loved each other. But here's the shocker. What I've just said, this isn't even the hard part yet. Okay, It gets harder in verses 14 and following as we move from love's intensity to love's apologetic, starting in verse 14 to the rest of the chapter. Now, there is some confusion out in the scholarly world and the literature about how these three verses, 14, 15, and 16, fit in the overall flow of Paul's argument here in Romans 12. Almost everyone's in agreement. 9 through 13, Paul clearly is talking about how we love the community of believers, and then verses 17 to 21, Paul's clearly talking about how we interact with the, um, the people outside the church, the world around us. But when it comes to verses 14, 15, and 16, they're not quite sure how this fits. Because on the one hand, verse 14, Paul's talking about being persecuted by people outside the church. And then verses 15 and 16, he goes back to how do you love people well? And so they think, well, maybe in verse 14, Paul jumped the gun and then kind of got his train of thought and then kind of continued on. So they see... Verses 9 through 16 being a unit. But I disagree. I actually think verses 14 to 21 is the unit. And the reason being this. If you look at these three commands, so verses 14, 15, 16, each have a command in them. They are offering such a counter-cultural response to their various situations 
that until you understand the gospel and been changed by it, they make no sense whatsoever. In other words, the way Paul is saying you're going to respond here, unless the, it's the gospel that's changed you, there's no way you're going to make sense of these, why you would even think to do this. And, and that's, these serve as an apologetic, an argument for the Christian faith. Let's look at them one at a time, and then you can decide for yourself. Let's look at the very first kind of command in this little unusual section, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now, this isn't something new if you've been a Christian for over a year. You, you, you're familiar with this phrase, blessing those who stand against you as a Christian is as countercultural as it can be, right? That, that's nothing new. But it's simply one thing to let people oppose you and absorb that evil. But it's an entirely different thing to then return blessing to them in return. So verse 14 is clearly connected to verses 17 and following, right? You can look at that. Repay no one evil for evil, Paul says. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Never avenge yourselves. And, and the summarizing comment, do not be overcome by evil, but, let, uh, but overcome evil by good. And of course, if you're familiar with the Bible, Paul's not saying anything new. He's just repeating what Jesus said repeatedly in the Gospels. I realize these are kind of hard to see, but on the left-hand column, I just wrote down the things that Paul is saying, and on the right-hand column, basically these are the things that Jesus said, and as you can see, Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus is saying. So in chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Jesus says in Luke 6, bless those who curse you. In verse 17, Paul says, do not repay anyone for evil. Look at Matthew 5. Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And on and on you see those examples there. Now, just to be clear, this isn't a call to absolute pacifism. Not at all. As a matter of fact, in our very next section in the book of Romans, Paul talks about the appropriate response to evils in society, right? So we'll talk about that next week. For this morning, the point I'm trying to make that I think Paul is getting at, is that Christian responses as visible displays of the gospel itself should be so evident and apparent that they are a testimony and a radical confrontation to the world in which we live. In other words, your response to these circumstances, because there's such a testimony of the gospel, they will actually change the society you're a part of. Your response to the evils of this world is such a display of the gospel that it will change the society around us. And I can't think of a, a better example of that than MLK. His wife, Coretta Scott King, said, if you ever want to understand my husband, there's only one book you need to read, and it's, the, it's this book, Strength to Love. Listen to what he says. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. I don't know what that means, but I like it. <laughs> Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. This is so insightful. Because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, we shall still love you. Send your hooded pepper, uh, um, perpetrators or perpetrators. Uh, I got this word first hour. <laughs> Send the bad guys of violence into our community. <laughs> I just, 
I, yeah. At midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom. But not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. To have the strength to love your enemies like that, friends, this shows the bankruptcy of the world's values and the supremacy of the gospel. Well, Paul is saying your response is such a visible display of the gospel that it will change the foundations of the world around you. Second, um, in verse 15, the second command, Paul says to truly empathize with people around you is equally countercultural. To weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, no, that's not countercultural at all. As a matter of fact, anytime there's a tragedy, I just sympathy is my leading emotion, and that's clear everywhere. If that's what you think, that's because you are the inheritor of a Christian ethic. Whether you are a Christian or not, if you feel sympathy towards those in tragedy, you inherited that from a Christian legacy. Because if you think that is a common universal impulse, you're wrong. It is not, even to this day, certainly through history. The reason Western civilization feels that, and it just seems crazy that I would even mention otherwise, is because we live in such a Christ-haunted culture, people have no idea how influenced by Christ we are. And in many times, all the while, rejecting him. Never forget, years ago, I was in um, Ozuki Gaokuen. It was a, a suburb of Tokyo. And I was staying with a friend of mine who, who, li who lived out there. And there was a knock on his door. And this older Japanese woman showed up, and she had a gift. And she presented the gift, you know, domo arigato gozaimasu, you know, and it's kind of this transaction. She gives the gift, he bows, he takes it, they smile, she walks away. And I was like, what? That's intriguing. Or what was that all about? Is she like new to the neighborhood or are you new to the neighborhood? What's the deal? And he says, no, it's actually pretty sad. Her house burnt down last week. And until she's accepted by the community, she has to ingratiate herself by apologizing for the inconvenience and shame she brought to our people. And until she gives us all gifts and we accept them, she's on the outs. If you think sympathy is a universal response to tragedy, it's because you've been influenced by Christ and don't even know it. Because in that culture, they're not influenced by Christ and it shows. And that's just one of hundreds of cultures that are the same. So for us, weeping with those who weep, no big deal. We get that because that's our, our heritage as a Christian civilization. That one's not as big a deal as maybe... This one's a little harder for us. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's a little bit harder in our time. We haven't quite got the gospel penetrating us there because can we rejoice with those who rejoice without any smack of envy or sense of competition or a little bit of sense of, well, where's mine and self-pity? Can you celebrate with a brother who got a job when you desperately need one yourself? Can you rejoice with a sister who's made her pregnancy announcement when you long for your own? Can you sing sweet praise with, with a friend whose son or daughter is bearing fruit and believing the gospel while your child wanders away? Can you rejoice with the one who is blessed when you see none of that in your own life? That's going to require more of the gospel than maybe weeping with someone who weeps, doesn't it? That's going to require a radical change of heart to celebrate 
without any envy or, or waiting for my own or wondering what about me, but to just enter in and say, oh, man, that's so good. God is faithful and good, and I praise his name. Even though I'm struggling to provide, I celebrate with you. And that, that's, a gospel, that's a gospel change. Verse 16, the third command, another countercultural witness of the gospel, uh, associating with people, in, in my words, I would say, associating with people who bring no value to your life. Paul calls them the lowly, right? Not be wise in your own sight, but associate with the lowly. Can you associate with people who bring you no value? Aristotle, it wasn't a Christian, but a great Greek philosopher, said there's three kinds of friendship. There's the friendship of interests. So, hey, I like football. You like football. Let's hang out, right? Um, uh, and, and for women, uh, that's a stereotype. You like to shop. She likes to shop. You shop, okay? Um, you have interests that you share, and you have a friendship from it. He called there's, there's another friendship, friendship of advantage. Hey, we can help each other out with different skill sets. You know the boss. I know the boss. We're okay. So we got an advantage here. We create a friendship. And then he says there's a third friendship. That's not based on things you enjoy together, and there's not based on things you're going to get. It's called the friendship of virtue, where for no other reason you become friends because you point yourselves to something better. He says that's the best kind of friendship. Friendships of interest and advantage, they're transactional, easy, and somewhat, somewhat objectifying. But friendships of virtue that point you to something grander is what's, what matters. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Can you create friendships with people that bring no value to your life? that you can obviously see. They don't like the same things you like. They can definitely not bring anything to your life. In fact, they might bring inconvenience and need because they're a brother or sister in need. Can you value them for no other reason but because they are valuable as image bearers of God? That's what Paul is saying. Friends, do you see how each of these commands is so radically countercultural but firmly growing in the soil of, of Christian belief? What does the world think when they see a community who fully buys into these values and lives them out? They cannot help but stop and take notice. Not just of a community, but you as well. They cannot help but stop and take notice. And there's something there about this person. Everyone gets having friendships that can get you something or people you like. But these people have nothing in common but this Jesus fella. And they're loving each other. I don't see that anywhere in the world. Love's apologetic. Friends, the hard thing about preaching a passage like Romans 12, 9 through 21, is on the one hand, there's, there's nothing here that's rocket science, is there? I mean, you, you didn't need a preacher to tell you what these commands mean. You, you just know that, right? But on the other hand, if Christianity was just a matter of reading the Bible, the question is then why are so many Christians struggling to love this way? Right? So on the one hand, this is like very... You didn't need me to preach to you. But on the other hand, we've got to address, well, then why is it, if this is so easy to understand, why is it not being lived out? So I want to close with unpacking that for a second. I don't know if you remember two weeks ago when Jesus opened us in chapter 12. He talked about the imperatives of the gospel and the indicatives of the gospel. An imperative, for example, is like a command. Do this truth. An indicative is a statement. This is truth. Does that make sense? An imperative says, do these things, and indicative is just, this is a thing, right? Chapters 1 through 11, it was the, the indicative of the gospel, all that God has done, all the realities, our identity in Christ, peace with God, all these things. And then in chapter 12, he turns to the imperatives, now do this. Here's the thing, I think we try to do the imperatives of the gospel without living in the indicatives. 
and we kind of burn out on that. In some ways, you could say, we're, we're trying to live the life of Christ without the life of Christ is what's happening here. How can anyone out of us do what Paul is talking about here? Because it seems humanly impossible. And as I said earlier, it, it probably pretty much is humanly impossible until the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. And also, as verse 2 of this chapter points us to, we have to be doing this in view of the mercies of God. And what is that? That's all that Paul wrote in chapters 1 through 11, basically the gospel. Let me give you four reasons I think the gospel makes it possible to love people this way. Number one, the gospel reminds us of how patient God was and is to us in Christ. How patient God was to you in your rebellion and your rejection of him. How patient God is to you in your ongoing shortcomings and ignoring of his truth. Romans 2, 4 says, it is the patience and kindness of God that leads us to repentance. How patient God was with us. How couldn't we be patient with others as well? Second is, as we learned last week, the gospel is how we think of ourselves with sober judgment. Right? The gospel reminds us we are so weak and needy, yet so loved and empowered. So weak and needy, we could never be full of pride. So loved and empowered, we could never be so full of fear. The gospel keeps us balanced, neither proud nor fearful. But remembering our neediness, but remembering we have a wonderful Savior who loves us. And it keeps us in that sweet spot. The gospel enables us to sincerely and lovingly share in others' highs and lows. Friends, if Christ is your ultimate desire, and I'm not saying that's what you just say. I mean really in your heart. If he is your ultimate desire, you will not begrudge any blessing another brother or sister in Christ experiences because you have the thing that ultimately matters. If Christ is your heart's joy, you don't need to be accepted by the powerful and the popular to have a sense of value or worth because the most powerful one values your worth and showed you on the cross how much that is by the life of his own son. So you can enter into others' joys. You can enter into their struggles without feeling envious or inferior. And you can do that well. And then finally, the gospel tells us there is a judge. And he can be trusted to make all things right. Friends, we don't need to seek revenge, right? Because there is one who will avenge and there is one who will bring perfect righteousness into every situation. And we know this, this world is not the end of the story. God will make all wrongs right. And so we can let go of the burden to get our due. Now, I want to be clear, this is not the same as justice. We're talking about revenge and avenging ourselves. It's different from justice. We'll talk a little bit more about that distinction next week. But we don't have to feel like we've got to make these wrongs right that offended me, that came against me. And if you've ever been sinned against, I mean grievously. I know how hard that is. More importantly, Scripture does. Just probably this last year, I've ended an eight-year battle with someone who grievously betrayed and offended and sinned against me. And for eight years, I struggled trying to forgive this person. Spent countless nights ruminating over, the, going over the details and the what ifs and shoulda, coulda and this, that and the other thing. And it took a long time, but I always knew I've got to let go of the burden to get it right. And let me tell you how freeing that was to get to the point to say, I forgive you, I love you, and this will never come before us, between us again. And that's just clear. I actually think 
I mean, that felt good. I mean, like, you guys know this, but you need to know it existentially. Man, that was for me. Because I think the relationship's still destroyed just because nothing happened after that that you would think would happen. Unfortunately, I'm not trying to do therapy behind the pulpit. I'm just saying God will make all things right because he's the perfect and righteous judge. So verses 9 through 21, it ends as it begun with our need to be dependent upon God, to have the love of God poured out upon us so the love of Christ can compel us to live this way. So the question I want you to end with, I want to end with today is, has the love of God been poured out into your heart? Is that the experience you've had? Or are you just living off kind of cultivated Christian civilities, inoculated to what the actual gospel is, deprived of its true power? You don't want that. You want the, the love of God poured out into you. You want true worship to be that thing that, that, that is a response to his mercies to you. That is just all-consuming. That's supernatural from himself. That, that's, that's the only reasonable response to what God has done. And it's glorious because you participate in what God is doing in the world. That's why love has to be genuine. But it can only come when the love of God is poured into your heart. And it can only come when you understand God saves sinners. The gospel. If you're interested in talking about what that means, you can talk to one of our elders or talk to me at the end of the service. I'll be right here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel that you saved sinners. We, I was one of them. I still am. But your grace covers my sin and calls me to change. Lord, and you know very well how I felt reading this text and my, in, in, my deficiencies and my shortcomings. And Lord, I know you are gracious and kind. And you are working in my heart as you are in my brothers and sisters to be this very person so that we can be this community. That is your plan A to reach the world was the church. And Father, I pray that we would recognize that plan and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.